Section 23 of The Seven Follies of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Seven Follies of Science by John Finn. Section 23. That a man becomes of age on his twenty-first birthday. This might be regarded rather as an error of speech than as a fallacy of thought, were it not that the same erroneous idea has been carried into other conceptions, and has given rise to serious error, which has sometimes been of a practical nature. When a man reaches his twenty-first birthday, it is evident that he has lived only twenty full years. On his first birthday he was just beginning life, and it was only on his second birthday that he reached the age of one year. The same difference between the number of his birthdays and the number of his years continues all his life, and it is only on his twenty-second birthday that he has lived out the twenty-one years which entitle him to vote in this country, and which confer upon him all the rights and privileges of adolescence. The same discrepancy appears in the numbering of the centuries, and it is no uncommon thing to hear the seventeenth century spoken of as the sixteenth because it ran from 1601 to 1699, only the last year, 1700, having seventeen before the other two figures. Indeed, I have seen in print, under the authorship of one who must certainly have known better, the seventeenth century, named when the eighteenth was what was intended. It was not until the close of 1900 that the nineteenth century rounded out its full quota of years and it was with the beginning of 1901 that the twentieth century commenced its run. And although the attempt was actually made, yet all the edicts and laws of kings and kaisers could not alter this mathematical fact. That the exception proves the rule. This very common expression is a singular misconception as to the meaning of an old Latin proverb, exceptio probat regulum. The word probat used here really means to test, but it may also be translated proves, since the word prove also means to test, as is seen in its use in relation to the proving of cannon, the place where the guns are fired being called proving grounds, or in other words, testing grounds. Therefore the expression quoted at the head of this note does not mean that the exception confirms or ratifies the rule, but that it tests or tries it and if the exception cannot be easily explained away, the rule breaks down. For example, a somewhat positive person asserted that the only case in which the letter S had the sound sh when it preceded the vowel U was in the word sugar, and was at once met with the question, Are you sure? His rule, if rule it could be called, broke down on being proved or tested. That Cinderella's slipper was of glass most people would think that glass, as we know it, whether blown or cast, would not make a very serviceable slipper, and we have no reason to believe that it was made of spun glass. But all doubt in regard to the material of which the slipper was made is set at rest by referring to the original French version of the story, of which ours is a translation. There we are told that it was a slipper of bear, the French word for fur. This word the translator mistook for vea, which means glass, and so it has come to pass that all English-speaking people, 
believe that Cinderella's slipper was made of glass. In the German version the slipper is of gold. The story is very old, and a similar legend is told of Rodopi, the famous Egyptian courtesan, who was said to have built the third pyramid. While she was bathing, her slipper was carried off by an eagle and dropped in the lap of the Egyptian king, who was so struck with its beauty that he sought out the owner and made her his queen. See Shakespeare Cyclopedia, page 258. That glass is very hard. We are led to believe that this error is very prevalent because the expression, as hard as glass, is used as a comparison by some manufacturing firms in their advertisements of goods, in which hardness is a specially desirable quality. And we are confirmed in this view by the fact that the editor of one of our mechanical journals actually defended the implied statement on the ground that glass is very brittle. Hardness, as we all know, is a comparative term. Copper is hard when compared with lead. It is soft when compared with brass, and brass is soft when compared with common iron. The latter is soft when compared with steel, and steel itself is soft when compared with iridium or with the diamond. Glass, however, according to all the scientific tests used by the mineralogist and the physicist, is quite soft. It is easily scratched by flint and by several minerals of that grade, while flint is easily scratched by carborundum, ruby, and some other substances, the hardest material known being the diamond. It is a curious fact that next to the diamond, the hardest substance would be an artificial product, carborundum. It readily cuts the hardest materials and is invaluable as an abrasive. Different kinds of glass vary greatly in hardness, but they are all comparatively soft and may be cut by a good steel tool. It is a common practice amongst amateur opticians to shape pieces of glass into lenses in the turning lathe, just as they would shape a piece of iron or steel. An ordinarily hard steel graver will cut glass as if the latter were cheese, and a bit of fine glass may soon be brought so nearly to the proper curve that it will require merely a little polishing to make a good magnifier. I have three or four lenses which were thus made, and which are very convenient and serviceable. It has been argued that glass must be hard because it is so brittle. But sugar is quite as brittle, and is certainly very much softer. Hardness and brittleness have no necessary relation to each other, although substances which by the usual process of hardening are made as hard as possible frequently become very brittle. This is true of steel and glass, both of which, when unannealed, are harder than usual and very brittle. But even the most brittle glass is comparatively soft. If our advertising friends would say, as smooth as glass, their claims would probably be much more attractive, and certainly far more accurate. Their goods, being made of hardened steel, are far harder than any glass that ever was produced. THAT FRANKENSTEIN WAS A MONSTER This atrocious literary blunder has become so common and has been so frequently accepted as true by writers of notable reputation that a correspondent of one of our literary journals actually defended the use of the expression the monster Frankenstein on the ground that the idea had now become part of the mental furniture of the majority of literary men. The assertion that the majority of fairly well-read men, not to speak of men whose profession is literature, are ignorant of the general outlines of the story of Frankenstein 
is certainly incorrect, and to say that if we only give a mistake or a falsehood circulation enough it will be converted into a truth is to propound a system of ethics which few will be willing to accept. Frankenstein, as many of the readers of this page know, is the title of a romance written by Mrs. Mary Wollstonecroft Shelley, the wife of the famous poet. It was written under very peculiar circumstances, which Mrs. Shelley herself has detailed in the first and second prefaces to the book, and which have been so frequently quoted, that it is unnecessary to do more than allude to them here. Mrs. Shelley was but nineteen when she began this story, one of the most remarkable in the literature of the nineteenth century. The substance of it is as follows. Frankenstein was a student of science at Ingolstadt, and the question, whence did the principle of life proceed, occupied his thoughts beyond any other. At length he thought he had solved it, and he set about constructing a human being into which he could infuse life. To avoid the great difficulty of working on very minute organs, he made his man eight feet high and large in proportion. After two years' hard work he finished the construction of this being, and succeeded in vitalizing it. When he had accomplished his task, and the creature showed signs of life, he was horror-struck at the sight of the fearful monster he had created, and he fled from it in terror. The monster escaped to the woods, and was the terror of those who saw it. In the account which the creature afterwards gave to Frankenstein, in the way in which he subsisted, and how he learned to speak and to understand French, showed wonderful imagination on the part of the authoress. In the account which the monster gave of the way in which he was treated by everybody, and his woeful sense of isolation, is very pathetic. But this expulsion from all association with any other being led him to entertain bitter and vengeful feelings against men in general, and his creator in particular. He murdered the younger brother of Frankenstein, and contrived to fix the crime on an innocent young girl who was executed for it. He found Frankenstein in the mountains, and made him promise that he would create a mate for him, a female with whom he might associate in love and sympathy. Frankenstein made the promise and set about the work, but before it was completed he repented and destroyed the creature he was making. Thereupon the monster appeared and threatened him with the most dire vengeance. He killed the dearest friend that Frankenstein had, and swore that he would be with him on his wedding night. When that night came the monster murdered the bride of Frankenstein, and then departed for the region of the North Pole. Frankenstein attempted to follow for the purpose of destroying the demon, but in the northern seas he was picked up in an exhausted condition by a ship on board of which he expired after giving a full account of all that had happened. The monster fled towards the north with the expressed intention of immolating himself on an immense funeral pyre. From this the reader will see that Frankenstein was not the monster, and to the latter no name is given in the romance. From this the reader will see that Frankenstein was not the monster, and to the latter no name is given in the romance. End of section 23